Welcome to the Bethesda Christian Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit yourbcc.org or download our mobile app from the App Store. Bad things happen in a lot of lives, but God can change things. And this morning, I'm going to be talking about that and touching on some of the theme that we've had in our songs this morning about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what we heard in the opening scripture that we have an inheritance that's imperishable because of the resurrection of Jesus. Bad things happen, but God can turn it to good. Have you ever had a really great thing happen in your life? only to be followed by something terrible. Sometimes it happens. And I was looking around for some stories. I found a few. I thought I could share them with you by way of example this morning to keep in mind as we touch on God's word. But I read this about somebody who bought a new car and it said, we just bought a new minivan today. My first really nice vehicle. It's the top of, a, top of the line Sienna, and it is awesome. It's a $50,000 car. I can't believe we were able to figure out how to afford it. I had to drive two hours to pick it up. I was so tired getting home, I hit the side of our garage pulling the new car in. I know there are worse things that can happen, but I can't stop crying right now. You're having a great day. You're riding the wave. Man, something terrible happens. I read this story. I just bought a brand new Galaxy phone on Amazon, 700 bucks. Didn't realize I needed a new SIM card. So I put my phone in my pocket to go to the store to get my new SIM card. On the way, I stopped for gas. And I managed to lose the phone. Brand new, charged up battery. Nothing set up because it didn't have the SIM card. Nothing identifying it. Nothing done. Nothing done to it ever at all. Brand new, in my pocket for all of 10 minutes, gone. Because my pockets are bad places for 700 bucks worth of something very light and very thin. Great thing happens. Suddenly it went south. I saw this one, an article just from June this year. On June 14th, a man in China bought a brand new BMW 5 Series. Now, to honor his God for this great blessing that he received in a car, he decided that he would pay homage to his God. He was going to cover the car with this red cloth, lay in front of the vehicle, uh, an offering of fruit, and, and then he put up these two tall incense sticks. And they were as tall as the man himself, if not a little bit taller, and he lit those incense sticks. Thanking his God for his blessing. Well, as the incense sticks were burning, a few misguided, wayward kids came along. And they moved the incense sticks towards the car. And that cloth he had covering the car, well, it ignited, and the whole car ignited. And it said in the article, by the time the firefighters arrived, 
The car was a total loss. Yes, his brand new BMW burned to a crisp. Have you ever lived a story like that? You're just having a great day. Wonderful things are happening. I believe we've probably all lived stories like this. And then it turns, maybe not as bad as some of these, maybe even worse. And then we experience the pain and the regret. Uh, Why did I buy that new car? I should have been content with my old car. Come home and crash into the garage. I knew I should have just kept my old phone. Or I should have put the new one in the case and then I wouldn't have lost it. But what if the story were, you know, you crashed your new Chevy on the way into the garage and then you open up the door and there's a brand new Cadillac. Now that would be a turn, wouldn't it? Well, that'd be great that the, the bad thing turned into even something better. You lost your new phone only to reach into your pocket to find the, the better one you couldn't afford. Do you live your life with that attitude? An attitude that says, when something awful happens, when bad happens, better comes. When bad happens, better follows. The idea that the best is yet to come, that is a tenet of Christianity. And it's not just a platitude. This isn't something we're going to stick on a bumper sticker and forget about it. It is a promise. You know, there are many things worse than losing your phone or crashing your car. And we can think of worse things and then even the extreme. And that's death. The Bible tells us death is an enemy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is all about the resurrection, the apostle Paul talks to us about death. And he puts it this way. In verses 25 and 26, he writes, for Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we face this enemy. We don't talk about this very often. We don't talk about the idea of what comes after but I want to make it a concentration this morning. We, we still face this enemy. But does that enemy have any teeth? Does death hold something over us? You know, when that bad thing called death happens, does better follow? I want to address that this morning from a passage in the Old Testament that ties right into the New Testament from the Old Testament book of Hosea. Now, we've been reading through some of these prophetic books together. And if you've not picked up and been reading with us, or if you're visiting, you just take a look at the back of our bulletin this morning, and we have a little schedule for you to read. We've been reading the Bible together for the whole year. And we're into these Minor prophets, they're called, and we can read a book in a week. So last week we went through Amos, this week Hosea, next week Micah, and then we're going to start into Isaiah. And there's so much in these Old Testament books 
that are relevant for, for us today. And they point right directly at the cross of Jesus Christ. And they talk about and pro- prophesy what Jesus accomplished for us so much. And in this uh, passage this morning from Hosea, there is something that's relevant for us even today. Hosea is a prophet who, in his life, he pictured in a very literal way, Jesus. And if you were here in December, you might remember Pastor Julie gave a message about Hosea and how he exemplified the unbounded love of Jesus Christ. He was a picture of Jesus. He purchased his wayward, adulterous wife from slavery. He was a living image of Jesus, purchasing with his own life our pardon for sin. Or to use another word, Jesus redeemed us. He bought us back. He paid for the penalty of sin with his life. And we receive that redemption. We receive the receipt of this purchase, if you will, by repenting, by turning from sin, believing that what Jesus did, the sacrifice that he paid on the cross with his very life was a payment for our sin and it made us right with our creator God and not temporarily, not for some short finite period, but forever. And that's an amazing thing. This is what the prophet Hosea was exemplifying and prophesying by purchasing back his very wife who was adulterous and buying her from slavery. Hosea exemplified Jesus by showing such love for his wife. And that account about the prophet, it covers the first three chapters of his book. But there's more to his story. He lived in the 8th century B.C. when the nation of Israel was slipping away. It was deteriorating into uh, idolatry and all kinds of uh, rejection of God. Israel had already separated into two kingdoms. We've talked about that. The south uh, in Judah, the smaller kingdom. In the north, Israel, the larger kingdom. And in the north, the people had turned to fashioning idols and making uh, things that they would bow down to and worship out of silver or gold or whatever, wood. And they were worshiping these Images, man-made images as gods, false gods, much like this guy who would put incense in front of his new BMW to honor some false god. These people were honoring false gods. They were even uh, perverting worship to the point of sex acts. They were visiting shrine prostitutes uh, to worship fertility gods. And Hosea condemned these perverse forms of worship as spiritual adultery. This was the picture of his wayward wife. It was adultery. And he comes against this spiritual adultery. And his messages from God, they were intense. They were harsh. They were messages of judgment to the nation of Israel. If you don't turn, these things are going to happen to you. And they weren't nice things. It was destruction. We heard about some of this judgment last week in the book of Amos. And 
in most of these prophets, their words are relentless words of judgment. But in it all, in all of these books where these stern and hard words are coming against the people, there's hope. There is always hope. And the hope points directly to Jesus. The Old Testament is there to point to Jesus every time. The hard words of Amos concluded with the hope of Jesus. Amos closed his book looking forward to the restoration of the city of David. And we are restored through Jesus, the king in the line of David. And we see this same kind of hope. It springs up almost out of nowhere in the book of Hosea. In, in the midst of some very severe words from a passage I want to share to people who've rejected God, they've scorned God, they've gone off to worship a man-made things. This prophet brings up hope, hope to even beat death because these people are facing a death penalty. And Hosea brings up the hope of a resurrection, the hope that we've heard about this morning, the hope that we've sung about this morning, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, a hope for an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. The New Testament understood these things. This is what Jesus did for us, and the Old Testament pointed to it. The hope that I'm referring to is in Hosea chapter 13. The chapter begins scathing account of the people. The people in the north in Israel, Hosea says, you've turned to these idols, you kiss them. You kiss calf idols. And he writes, you've even practiced human sacrifice. This is how low these people have sunk into a, a morass of uh, idolatry and godless cults. And he went on to write, you people will disappear as quickly as the morning mist, as quickly as smoke going out a window. But it's not going to be so subtle for you. It's not going to be as subtle as the mist blowing away. It's going to be as effective it's going to be as quick, but not as subtle. No, you're under a death penalty. Justice is going to be felt like an attack by a wild animal. And he writes, destruction is coming like a bear who has had her cubs stolen. You don't want to face mama bear after the cubs have been stolen. And then God says this through the prophet Hosea. I want to read Hosea 13. This is verses 9 through 15, the, uh, the end of the chapter. Hosea wrote, You are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. Where is your king that he may save you? Where are your rulers in all your towns of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? So in my anger I gave you a king, and in my wrath I took him away. The guilt of Ephraim is stored up. His sins are kept on record. Pains as of a woman in childbirth come to him. But he is a child without wisdom. When the time arrives, he doesn't have the sense to come out of the womb. 
I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? I will have no compassion, even though he thrives among his brothers. An east wind from the Lord will come, blowing in the desert. His spring will fail and his well dry up. His storehouses will be plundered of all its treasures. Some very stern words there from the prophet. Very harsh words. Israel, you're destroyed. Can't put it more succinct than that. Your king can't save you, neither can the princes. Ephraim, which was the largest of the tribes in the northern kingdom, it's representative of the whole nation. And sometimes you'll read that in the Old Testament. Ephraim, it, it's a reference to Israel. It's a reference to the north. And Hosea said, Ephraim is full of sin. And on this kingdom, God is going to have no compassion. It will be plundered. It will fall. And yet in the, in the very midst of this very difficult passage of judgment, hope springs up. Hope jumps up in the middle of this doom and destruction, and it's the hope of Jesus Christ. And if you blink, you miss it. You're reading along in this chapter, all through it, and it's hard times are coming, people. But then there's verse 14. And it's like a switch. It just turns. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O oh death, are your plagues? Where, O oh grave, is your destruction? Now, this is a reference of triumph over death. And it's a reference that points directly to the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And there is no more better hope than that. Jesus defeated death. And how did Jesus do that? How did he beat death? Well, he came back to life. Jesus died and he came back to life. Jesus rose from the dead. Death could not hold him down. He conquered death. He resurrected to life. Jesus walked away from a tomb. He left the tomb empty. And what happened to death? Death became a toothless foe. Yeah, death is an enemy to the likes of you and me. We all have to face it. But it's a defeated enemy for sure, absolutely, positively, because we who die in Jesus Christ, we have a guarantee. And that guarantee is that these bodies of ours, which return to dust, will be resurrected. Hard to understand. I know it. But it's a promise and it's a guarantee to a resurrected life. And it was, it was uttered by Hosea in the middle of this, of this death sentence. He brought a condemning indictment to these people, followed by a death sentence. And yet he says, you can be redeemed. I will deliver this people. And it's a promise. It's a promise that was taken hold of by the great New Testament apostle Paul. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul references right back to this Old Testament book. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he explains the resurrection that we have to look forward to in great detail. It's a long chapter, chapter 15. 
And Paul gives a great explanation. He begins chapter 15 by first talking about how we're saved and why we're saved. He said, by the gospel, you are saved. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Paul writes, by the gospel you are saved. And then he gives us a very succinct summary of what this gospel is. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Jesus died for our sins. Sin was an offense to God. Sin is an offense to God. And God's justice demanded a penalty. What was the penalty? The penalty was a death penalty. This is how offensive sin is to God. Now, I don't know if we say it that bluntly often, but sin is a death penalty. What could be done about this death penalty? Well, God made a way in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament way of dealing with this death penalty, God said you could have a substitute in the form of an animal. It's so these ongoing animal sacrifices were continuous. But Jesus changed all that. His life was a final substitute and a perfect substitute, fully satisfying the righteous justice of God. His life-giving sacrifice, as tragic as it is, as hard as it is to read about, is wonderful news for all who receive that gift. And yet there is more. Jesus didn't lay lifeless and cold in a tomb. He didn't stay in the grave. Death would have still had the upper hand if that were the case. But as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, according to what was prophesied in the Old Testament, according to what Jesus told his believers and followers that walked with him. And then Paul goes on to explain in this chapter the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wrote... And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. See, it's a, it's a linchpin of our Christianity, this idea of the resurrection. And do we live in that enough? Do we realize that? This is, this is a very central tenet to our faith. And we need to be reminded of it from time to time. Paul made the point that the resurrection of Jesus was so significant because it's what guarantees a resurrection for all who believe in Jesus Christ. And how is it going to work? How is that going to take place? See, Paul knew that question was going to come up. So he put it out there rhetorically. How, how does this resurrection happen, some will say. So he answered the question. He put forth the answer in this letter to the Corinthians, and he gave an explanation by way of example. He said, the body, this, this body we have, it's like a seed. You know, when we die, it just goes back to the ground. And a seed has got to die before it can spring forth with new life. And we all know that. That's a uh, very... A very plain example. If you want something to grow, you take the seed, you put it in the ground. 
And from the ground springs up new life. New life bursts forth. And Paul gives this example to say, this is what it is for the resurrection. This old body has got to go somewhere first. It's got to die. And then new life springs forth. He said, there's a natural reality and a spiritual reality. And this, this body's going to be born in a spiritual way. And it's an amazing thing. And at the end of the chapter, he brings a summary. And I want to share some of those verses with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 53 uh, through 58. Paul writes, for the perishable, and that means our body, this, this old shell here of ours that carries our spirit and our soul, this old body, the perishable, must clothe itself with the imperishable. And the mortal, he repeats it. He, he gives emphasis because he repeats it again just with a different word. This mortal must put on immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Sound familiar? Straight from Hosea. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, after this entire chapter, chapter 15, Paul writes, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So there's this great explanation to Paul's readers. The corruptible human body must clothe itself. It must put on something. And what is it going to put on? Incorruption. Something that is eternal. The mortal must put on immortality. Now this is going to be a drastic change. And when that happens, he writes, this old biodegradable body that goes back to dust is going to be Incorruptible. It's going to put on incorruption. And he writes, then will come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. He pulls from an Old Testament prophet, and that's Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. Death is swallowed up in victory, a prophetic word that Paul said is fulfilled in Christ and his resurrection, but he goes on. And he pulls then from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? See, the hope of the resurrection promised in Jesus Christ, it was given in the Old Testament. And it isn't some rhetorical question. It isn't something that uh, Paul found in Hosea and said, oh, that was just the, the prophet making some rhetorical uh, Utterance, no, it is a promise. And the, the uh, apostle pulled it out there for us, and he said, the resurrection is death being swallowed up in victory. Death is defeated. So he puts these questions out there, almost mocking death. Oh, where, oh, death is your victory. Where, oh, death is your sting. It's gone in Jesus. It is gone in Jesus. When the ultimate bad happens, death, for those in Christ, 
better is guaranteed. Better is going to follow. Now consider how the apostle closed his thoughts, how he brought that book to a, or that chapter to a close. He said, thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something you can hang your hat on. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your work in the Lord is not in vain. See, Paul takes this future promise, the promise of a resurrection. It's something we can look forward to. It's something that's going to come, but he pulls it right back to the present. And he plants it squarely in the present time, in the immediate for his readers. He doesn't say, well, stand firm sometime in the future. He doesn't say, oh, uh, sometime you're going to have to uh, let nothing move you. No, right now. After all this talk of the resurrection, he says, stand firm in the promise. Stand firm in the power of the resurrection. Can you say, I will stand and know that he is right beside Because that's what I think the essence of the apostle is right here. Can you stand and know that he is right beside you, the risen Jesus Christ, and you're not alone? Can you live in that victory, live in that victory that death is defeated and let nothing move you, nothing? Ah, Nothing, whether it's some silly thing like dropping your phone in the toilet. I mean, that, that people get so upset about things like that. But really, what does it mean? And Paul says, let nothing move you. Now, I know. Oh, you say, that's easier said than done. Of course it is. But that's the outlook. That is the attitude that the apostle is encouraging. Whatever today brings, whatever it is, You live with the outlook that the better is coming. Your labor is not in vain because the best is yet to come. You have this victory. Are you living in it? Are you living in it? It is a living hope. That's what we heard at the open. It is a living hope, a guaranteed inheritance. As I bring this to a conclusion, I want to share an image with you. And... I give credit to Robin Carley. She mentioned this earlier in the week. She said sometimes in the middle of the summer, she gets a little uh, college football fever. So she'll go slip into the DVD player, one of the great old University of Michigan games. Maybe it'd be like, uh, like the 1998 game against Ohio State, where... Uh, U of M was up on top and, and then Ohio came back and they were winning and there was two minutes left and, and Michigan was down. And then there's a minute and a half left and they're still down. But then, who is this guy, Colasar? He takes, a, he takes a, a, a kickoff return and he goes halfway down the field and, and then he catches the touchdown pass and, you know, the game is won. The game is won. And she said, you know, when you watch that, you still get the emotion. You know, there's a fumble. There's a bad play. There's a bad call by by one of the officials. 
One of the players gets hurt and you're still feeling it. But you know, that feeling quickly goes away. And why is that? She said, because I know my team is going to win. The outcome is already set. See, and that's the way it is living with Jesus Christ. The outlook is already set. The outcome is already won. Are you living in that victory? Maybe you fumbled the ball today. Maybe you had a little ache or pain. Maybe you got uh, sacked uh, in the backfield. But God has got you, and victory is assured. And are you living that the victory is guaranteed in Jesus Christ? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you, do you have that victory this morning? Are you living in that? I, I talked to you about the reason for Jesus. That he came to pay for this penalty of our sin. Have you received that this morning? Because if you haven't, I want to invite you to. Because you can live in this victory. You can live knowing your future is bright. You can live knowing the best is yet to come. You don't have to be shaken by anything that happens in this life because better is going to follow. And I, I'm going to, to ask if you haven't to really consider, and I'll repent and understand that Jesus came to the earth to make that final sacrifice to satisfy the just and the righteous justice of God. Sin's a death penalty that separated us, but Jesus made the way for reconciliation. He paid the death penalty sin. He gave his life. And that's an amazing, awesome, wonderful gift for all of us. And if you haven't received it, I want to invite you to receive it today. And if you have anything else happening in your life, sickness, struggle with work, family, you know, something going on in the house, something going on at the office. Are you living in the victory, knowing that the outcome can be better and will be better? If you need that uh, to just be encouraged in you today, I want to invite you to come to these altars for prayer. I'm going to ask our elders to come this morning. This is the second Sunday of the month where we just take time at the close of the service to pray and to pray for your needs and what's going on in your life. But I also want to ask if you're someone who's sitting out here in the sanctuary this morning and you've never yielded your heart to Jesus, you can come forward too. Come forward as others come to be prayed for and anointed by the elders of the church. And you can just say, I need Jesus. And th these elders will pray with you. They'll help you to invite Jesus into your life. If you have uh, something going on that needs prayer, don't be shy this morning. Come and, and receive. The word of God said, says if there's any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church and they'll anoint you and pray the prayer of faith. We want to pray that prayer over you today for whatever it is because the victory 
is assured in Jesus. Now, if you're in the, the, the back of the sanctuary and you need prayer, just lift your hand. If you can't walk forward here, we understand. And some, some of these elders in the back will come over and they'll pray with you. Let's pray right now as we invite the Holy Spirit just to be at these altars and to meet every need. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word from the Old Testament, Lord, that points right to Jesus. God, we know we suffer in this world. and Sometimes that suffering is long. But help us to be assured of what's to come. And if we're missing that, Lord, encourage our hearts. Even if we come forward today, Lord, help us, Lord. Help us to, to believe it. Penetrate our hearts, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, use every elder at this altar, at these altars this morning to be true, true, open channels of your blessing. We're doing what your word says, God. And we ask for the grace of the Holy Spirit to move through these elders, God. In the name of Jesus, we ask it and we pray it. Amen.